0: Hello, and welcome to Making Problems to Solve, the podcast about curiosity, creativity, and problem solving. Today, I'm talking to Mary Sai from Kodamari Design. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks a lot. Thanks for uh, talking to me today. So, I always am curious about people's creative journey, and just looking at your webpage here, you've had uh, quite a lot of, you know, a range of uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) creative-adjacent experiences here. So. I'm curious, you went to originally went to college for architecture, that's right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, that's correct. I did uh, my undergrad in architecture and I can say that I'm fully a de- designer at heart because I do many different kinds of design fields. Um, yeah, so I did like a architecture undergrad and then went to grad school because I decided I did not want to do architecture anymore and got my master's in, it's called master's of design, which is extremely vague. But right right. Uh, that's the degree that's what it was called so
0: <laughs> yeah <clears throat> okay um so what got you first interested in architecture
1: um honestly I think I was always really interested in art but then also I uh really enjoyed mathematics and science and kind of engineering adjacent things but I knew I needed to do something creative so architecture seemed like perfect medium. Um, I also went to, I remember my like freshman year, I took this one class and it was a specific professor and he talked about, you know, how I think he discovered like the blueprints for uh, Pantheon or the Parthenon or something. Uh, One of those like ancient uh, buildings and my mind was blown. I was like, I have to do this. This guy seems amazing. Like whatever he does, I have to do. So um, just kind of went down that and I really enjoyed architecture. I worked in a firm for quite a few years, I think probably like four or five years. Um, And the firm was also very fun because we designed exhibits for zoos and aquariums. So I got to hang out with a lot of animals. And yeah, I got to like see behind the scenes and do a lot of like landscape architecture, um, exhibit architecture. And it was really fun. Um, But it was just maybe not for me because it's super long hours, low pay. So I, at that point I was like, this is really hard. And the The like, uh, saying is if you don't truly love it, then you shouldn't do it because it is a very difficult career path. And I think at that point, I realized I didn't truly love it as much as I enjoyed it sometimes.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, I can imagine, especially with the just the time commitment and you know, yeah. you know to that. Um, so so you said you were always interested in art. So you were you did you take a lot of art classes uh, going through school?
1: Um, yeah, I took some. I will say growing up, I was actually more of a musician. So I did. Um, I played a lot of instruments, but mostly violin. I think I started when I was like three. Um, and that music was a huge part of my life. And then I think only when I hit like high school. So 14, 15, like wanted to rebel. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And um, art started to take over, did like some painting and drawing classes, figure drawing um, in college, I definitely took a lot of like figure drawing classes, art history, sculpture, etc. Um, and yeah, and I like still, I still try to do that. Although, I, to be honest, nowadays I have far too many hobbies, so I don't really have time. <laughs> but uh, sure, yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> so it's always I've always been interested in it, and I've always like had a sort of creative itch that I needed to fulfill. So yeah.
0: Okay, and when you were uh, doing music, did you do any? composing or were you just mostly you know playing other compositions
1: oh I wish I could say I was composing that's so cool um no mostly (laughs) uh just playing other yeah compositions I was doing a lot of classical music so I was Mm -hmm. really seriously a musician um considered going to music school instead of university instead of college Um, had to make that choice when I was like 17 18 and applying for places but I did Um, auditioned for a lot of music schools and um, got into quite a few of them and yeah at that point I was actually I wish I composed like I really wish I could like do improv well because I loved jazz at that point and like oh I really wish I could you know learn music theory and I did a little bit but I just was so bad at improv and I don't know. It's something that I still admire to this day. Like jazz musicians are some of the best. And I know a lot of um, folks who went to Berkeley up in Boston for uh, school. So yeah, Mm -hmm. really admire them. But for me, it was mostly just classical music, which I shouldn't just say just classical music because it is in itself like a beautiful art. But I think back then, I thought it was just so much cooler to go into jazz.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's a, I'm always curious if people had, how many different creative aspects they got pulled towards, you know, it's hard to do everything. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Although you always try. So.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think, you know, there's people who just want to, you know, try one of everything. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people, you know, again, maybe they're, if you have that passion and drive, you'll just be a, you know, professional violinist, you know, and that's your thing. Um, But Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. A lot of people, I think like to dabble in music and do it for fun.
1: Yeah, definitely. I still do sometimes, although, uh, not as much violin nowadays, it's mostly piano. Cause that was my hobby. I picked up during COVID just learn relearning piano. So that's been fun.
0: Okay. Are you, is it classical piano you're doing as well? Nope.
1: <laughs> I think <laughs> I was like, no, no more classical. So now I'm trying to learn jazz piano, which is so hard. <laughs> Um, and really ambitious for someone who has not played piano in many, many years, but slowly learning it, um, getting back into it. And it's just, honestly, it's more fun now because it is a hobby. And before I think when I was a kid, I didn't fully appreciate music and like understanding what knowing an instrument is like, it felt more like a chore almost probably because my parents were (laughs) looking vicariously through me. Um, Mm -hmm. so now um, I actually really enjoy it and I do pick up the violin, Every once in a while, but I, it it like almost makes me sad because I remember how good I used to be. And now I'm like, oh, my fingers are so slow. It's just like nothing sounds good anymore and stuff like that. But yeah, I still enjoy it.
0: (laughs) That's good. I mean, I think that I really, you know, I don't know, envy, but I just, I can see people who make music like a bigger part of their life. I mean, I Mm -hmm. own several guitars and I played them on and off for a while, but I never actually got good at anything but i do enjoy it and you know i see some people have like everybody in their family plays an instrument and they'll just all sit around and <laughs> play instruments and stuff and um that's always fun and you know of course anybody who got a guitar when they were a teenager you know imagine being in some sort of band or something even whether or not yeah, you're exactly a rock star just mm-hmm. still even just playing with other people is fun so
1: yes exactly I, you know, yeah
0: <laughs> I, I you know i didn't go that direction and spent a lot of time doing a lot of other things so it's probably not a big focus these days but still i was just talking to um ryan smith he's one of the guys i had on the show and (laughs) you have a printmaker that i talked to a lot and he showed a picture of his house he's building a new closet and he had his uh old uh, guitar amp in there and so i was talking to him about (laughs) different you know guitars and amplifiers Mm -hmm. and stuff and just the history of all that so kind of maybe go find my guitar and It's super dusty and out of tune, so might have to uh, get that back in shape. You know, just (laughs) just to fool around, even.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: It's definitely a lot of fun. So, so now it looks like you're doing more computer based stuff, uh, interaction design, experience design based Mm -hmm. things. Was that? Did you? Is that what you studied uh, when you went back to college, or did you kind of just get a job? Yeah. (laughs) So.
1: Uh, yeah. So after I did architecture, I was like, I would like to pivot and do more digital based, um, design, like UX design, things like that. So I chose the route to go to grad school cause I knew that would land me like a pretty solid job. Um, so I took on the debt and sucked it up and was like, all right, got to go to grad school. Got to learn from these professors, um, at Carnegie Mellon and, uh, yeah. So then I pivoted and now I work in tech. I work at Adobe, um, as an AI designer. Um, but also gra- grad school is where I really like refined my woodworking skills too. Cause that's where I took classes with this, uh, very old professor who had been doing it his whole life. And he taught me how to do, you know, like the traditional techniques, how to cut dovetails and do traditional like mortise and tenons. And then, um, furniture making and then additionally i would say furniture design as well which i would classify as something different so um once i felt really comfortable with my te- techniques and construction ability then i was able to kind of grow as a designer and i implemented that both in furniture and also as in my regular job as a ux designer
0: wow i i, <laughs> I, I didn't expect to hear that you learned woodworking uh, going to college to be a uh... computer designer. How did that, I mean, was that an optional class? How, how did that tie into your degree?
1: Yeah, it was optional. I had just done some furniture making before that. And I was like, I really want to learn more about this, like actually in a professional, not professional, academic setting from someone who Mm -hmm. is a professional. So, um, that was kind of optional, but then my second year I did a master's thesis and I kind of tied the two of those together. They were allowing us to explore any kind of um topic that you wanted and I was like I'm just going to make a bunch of stuff and like maybe I can turn this into a thesis like I want to explore craft and the idea of um actually I was spurred from a conversation I had with a engineering professor who was like you know eventually I think like AI is going to take over the designers jobs it's not necessary like you know like you're going to get you're not going to be relevant anymore. And I think I reacted very strongly to that as a designer. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I tried to explore more about like the idea of craft and what does it mean? Like, where's the human side within digital craft and technologies, things like that. And the thesis topic was very convoluted, but essentially it was very theoretical talking about um, like how, how does like making mistakes or how does human error get introduced into digital technologies and is that we, we regard it as a really negative thing. However, like, can you use that as a starting point to become something positive? Um, so yeah, it's a little complicated, but I tried to blend the two of those together in my second year in my thesis. So working with 3d printing and furniture making and, um, wood carving and, uh, at one point, I just like showed up with a bunch of spoons to my prof- to my thesis professor's office, and I was like, "Look what I did!" He's like, "Okay, but like, what can you do with this? <laughs> I was like, I don't know, but it's pretty cool. So managed to, you know, just create some interesting projects out of that.
0: Wow, I love that. I don't. I I'm c- really curious about your thesis. I don't. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people. I've 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 talked to a bunch of different people who had you know, and their, the topic of their thesis sounds really exciting. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think most people are like, after they've moved on from that, they're kind of like, not necessarily being like, oh, this is the best thing <laughs> I've ever written. Right. They're like, I did this so I could graduate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and but- honestly, I would, I started out the thesis that way being like, I just got to get this done. And then uh, like, just let me graduate. And <laughs> it made, it, it just turned my second year of my grad school into like something really fun because I actually enjoyed yeah. it. And I, at that point I actually had a job lockdown because I had an internship between my two years. So they gave me a return offer. I used to work at LinkedIn, um, which is where that mm-hmm. was. So my second year, I could just kind of mess around and be like, yeah, you know, this is whatever I want it to be. And my thesis, yeah, like the number of times I showed up in the the 3D lab, which is what that was called, like the wood shop and metal shop and 3D printers and stuff. And I was like, all right, what can I just like mess around with today? And to be fair, like the people there were very positive and they were like, yeah, go ahead. And I was like, can I break this 3D printer? And like, can I like do these things? And um, just experimenting around with like, what can I possibly just break kind of? Um, That was, that was fun. So like my my final project ended up being, uh, I'll try to describe it. Um, Essentially in 3D printing, there is something called under extrusion where the filament is under extruded. It doesn't come out of the nozzle at a at a constant rate. And that is a common error that happens. Um, so I, lo- I saw that and I was like, how can I tweak this so it's actually controllable? So um, what I did was kind of mess around with the code a little bit and made it so that the uh, extrusion rate was significantly reduced. So um, the end result is this like really interesting mesh that kind of looks like a spider web it's hard to describe on a podcast. It's much better to visualize it, which is, it, it is, you can see it on my Instagram, I guess, but uh, it, it creates these like really beautiful um, mesh bases and each one is not the same because the rate of gravity or at the rate of um, at which the filament drops due to gravity is different. So when it goes around the, when it, when it actually prints the vase, like the actual object, then it just... Yeah, sometimes it gets messed up. Sometimes there's like different levels of um visibility because the mesh is a lot tighter or it's a lot more opened up, kind of like open grained. Yeah, it's just a. Uh, it was an interesting project and it came out with a really cool result. So
0: yeah. <laughs> wow. I'm gonna definitely check that out and you know, will post uh you know, post that up on Instagram so people can see uh see that. It's uh that's pretty exciting. I love the way you said that you you went into the first I love that the Woodshop is called the 3D lab, because (laughs) um, I kind of discovered that kind of backwards. Because you know, just all the art classes I took, sculpture was something I really was interested in, and then I ended up, you know, watching a bunch of YouTube videos and going buying a table saw. So then started doing woodworking, and I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, this is, you know, this is just sculpture. It's just you know, building a chair. It's sculpture. It's (laughs) uh, it's 3D design. Um, so I like I like that they (laughs) just went all in and they're like, hey. (laughs) your <laughs> the 2d lab is for the you know painters and this is mm-hmm. the 3d lab for <laughs> people who you know make you know, physical objects so
1: that's yeah, super exactly. cool but just the
0: way idea that you were going in trying to see like what the failure modes were like how mm-hmm. what happens you know when things go wrong and like what yeah. can i turn that into as you know or take advantage of that for the design
1: yeah exactly
0: mm-hmm. yeah that's cool i was so i was looking through your instagram uh because you for the 3d printed uh, <laughs> uh mistakes and i found this one where you did a time expo a long exposure photograph of the oh yeah path that chisel takes when you do wood carving and that is pretty <laughs> wild
1: <laughs> yeah that was so. one of the experiments where i was like uh, let me just mess around with some stuff and i was like can i can you guys let me attach a an led to <laughs> to the cnc and uh, yeah, to their to their credit, they were they were very gracious and let me kind of do whatever for very expensive machines that I'm sure they would have gotten in a lot of trouble with if I actually broke them. But that one was fun. It's just it was me being very theoretical and understanding like how does the human hand work, in, like creating an object uh, as opposed to something that's digitally created. Um, you know, it's coded in, and uh, something that's hand carved is not. You just you see the path. Uh, that the gouge takes. And although the end result was supposed to be the same, it looks extremely different. Also, I was very bad at carving back then, but
0: the idea came <laughs> Right. Yeah. I, I love this. It's pretty cool. Cause I do mostly linoleum carving or, you know, for block printing oh, yeah. and still, mm-hmm. just to, and a lot of times, especially with that because you're actually carving in a certain direction on purpose. I mean, this, it's, it's right. hard to tell mm-hmm. from the wood carving here, what exactly <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if there's another picture that says what it came out of it okay yes it's interesting so it's a it's like a just a 3d texture kind of like mm-hmm. yeah try to describe it like kind of like scalloped texture
1: yeah exactly carved
0: and um yeah so yeah so you're and again you're re- like you said in your post there you're reading the wood grain um but mm-hmm. the cnc doesn't care what direction the wood grain is going it's just gonna cut through it so but yep. if you're using a chisel you need to pay attention you know
1: Yes, exactly.
0: And yeah, again, and it would be really interesting to to find uh, you know someone who's been carving for forty years and see how efficient they are compared to um <laughs> compared to uh, you know someone who's less experienced.
1: Yeah, definitely. I assume. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like maybe they might uh, scoff a little bit at the idea of using a CNC for carving, but I don't know. Right. I there's definitely pros and cons to both of them. I know I was talking to my good friend Paul from Copper Pig and he was doing some carving as well. And he loves the CNC. Like he sees the benefit of it as just another tool for a woodworker who is very accomplished with hand tools and carving and things like that. It's just the result is different and there are different preferences. I know he did like he did a poll on Instagram, I think that was like, which one do you prefer? Um, And I think most people preferred the hand-carved one because it felt more natural and organic. Um, mm-hmm. And as much as I hate to admit this, I think I actually I told him, I think I preferred the the CNC one because it, for my uh, aesthetic and my taste, I like things to be much more uniform. Um, mm-hmm. And I appreciated the, the hand-carved one because you can see how much technical ability goes into it. But I don't know. Maybe just my preference. Just I, I liked the CNC one. It felt
0: cleaner to me. Right. Yeah and I think that you know maybe if Paul practiced some more he could get closer to this. I mean that's the thing right that's your almost your goal <laughs> right, as, as yeah. carving is to get closer to the CNC you're never going to get there but um mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's really interesting i just talked to um Dave Turner at the Wooden Whale company he car- oh, he okay. hand carves uh whales and um he he also mentioned Paul so that was uh, <laughs> interesting that yeah also he appreciates jealous. his uh his skill and his work too and uh I do too. I've, you know, I've had uh, Paul on here as well. And he's just yeah. super interesting to see his take. Yeah. He definitely doesn't. He'll take advantage of any tool and, you know, and each one is the right tool for that specific application.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Paul and yeah. I talk a lot about kind of like the role of design and woodworking and um, yeah. pushing the boundaries. And I, I assume this is probably what he talked about on the podcast too. Cause he, I know it feels very passionately about it as do I. Yes.
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah. He was the most prepared I guess I've ever had. He basically had a thesis <laughs> that he was which is great because, again, I love talking to people and just discovering new things. I didn't think we were going to talk about 3D printing. Um, you know, just, <laughs> I didn't go back far enough in your Instagram to have discovered that, which is great because leads to death. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I did find the picture of this. It looks like it's kind of like a vase that is
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, inadequate because it has too many holes in it <laughs> from the under-extrusion. Yep. But just the patterns are really interesting to see. Um, it'd be really yeah. hard to do that on purpose to get it just like that. Yeah,
1: yeah. it's pretty much impossible, I guess. like you can't replicate mm-hmm. it. It's the, the, like the areas in which it does kind of underextrude and mess up are just they just happen by chance mostly, even though I did program it to drop at the same rate. it just sometimes it clump, like gets really clumpy and then it all drops at once or sometimes just nothing comes out. It's yeah, it's pretty right. interesting.
0: Yeah. And if there's like, you know, if it's an open 3D printer, if there's a breeze or something, someone walks by, it exactly, yes. <laughs> affect the air temperature um, minutely, just enough to to change it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's very exciting. So you said that um, even before you took the furniture class, you had started making furniture? hmm Yes. What um, um the <laughs> to make furniture um, without having a requirement of a class?
1: Uh, well, I tried to get into it. Uh, Most like the same as everyone. I was just really sick of IKEA furniture. And Mm -hmm. when I was working in the architecture firm, one of my coworkers um, was a woodworker. So he's like, how do I make like an actual good, uh, or how can I make like my own coffee table? Um, Mm -hmm. And he helped me figure it out. And that was kind of like my first foray into it. And I will admit that it was a river table, however, a river table with glass. So it was oh, okay. actually very difficult to do because had to like learn how to cut the glass, like the templating and everything. Um
0: so okay. that was, Wow, that
1: was my first piece.
0: <laughs> so you cut yeah, you cut the glass I, yourself? You didn't send it out to a shop that had like a water yeah. jam or something to cut the pattern? Yeah, it wow, was that's a, a, that's a dedication. Lot. <laughs> I think that's yeah, you know, totally doable. I have a new idea for a um, a disconnected river table because if you look at oh. the epoxy ones. You know, people are like, "How long is that epoxy going to stay attached to the wood?" There's not mm-hmm. really that much surface area, and like, you know, over the wood's going to move from you know seasonal temperature changes and stuff. And if you mm-hmm. move to a different house or something, um, so I was thinking of just uh, you know molding the the space where the river goes, and but not connecting the epoxy, so then like leaving a space between them somehow.
1: Oh, interesting. Huh.
0: That's an a exclusive. True. I just uh, <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to do that or if I'm going to – I don't have any wood. I don't have a slab to do it on. So if someone else wants to steal that idea, I'd love to see it uh, done. <laughs> I think it, yeah, you know, just to you know, explore a different way to look at it, yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So after you made your first coffee table, that uh, wasn't enough? You wanted to keep <laughs> doing it? or? <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I did that. And then um, I took a bunch of classes at a woodworking space uh, around here in Philly. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, absolutely hooked. Because then I was like, Oh, my gosh, I can just like, learn how to do this whole new technique and, and craft. And when I uh, learn a hobby, I go really deep into it. So okay. I was like, let me figure out as much as like possible. And let me learn all the techniques um, and then at that point I, I had been decided to go to grad school. So then I was like, Oh, there's a furniture maker here. Like, and he's a professor, mm-hmm. like I can pick his brain. So I'm sure I was very annoying, but I basically followed him around all the time. I was like, can you tell, like, tell me, like, give me all of your knowledge basically. And, um, yeah. So from there, I just wanted to learn as much as possible. And then after that, I moved to San Francisco, California, where I then really started to hone in on like my design aesthetic and I started doing commissions. I started teaching some classes. Um, And yeah, so I think the last, I think like four or five years is I've been really starting to define my brand, my aesthetic and um, trying to put that out there into the world.
0: Great. That leads to, I was just going to ask you, like, what, what, you, how would you define your aesthetic or what, you know, what your style is right now?
1: That's great question. I, for the most part, I would say it's fairly contemporary um, sculptural forms and functional art has been thrown out there as well. Um, mm-hmm. I will say the, almost all of my pieces are inspired from architecture. So obviously as an architect, that's, where my mind goes, I think in really large forms. So um, actually kind of opposite to Paul, I think in terms of the overall form and structure itself and how it fits within an environment. And I don't go, typically don't go too much into really intricate details um, because I usually like to take a step back and look at it as, you know, how does this fit within the room, within the environment? Whenever I do a commission, I always have to know, where it's going to be placed in the room, how it's going to fit in. I don't want it to be something that is so intricate that it stands out that everything else in the room doesn't really blend in anymore. So mm-hmm. um, that does lend itself to, I think, simpler forms because, well, especially when I was in California, because a lot of that style is very kind of contemporary, a lot of like curves and sculptural lines, things like that. Um, and yeah, I think that, that mindset definitely comes from me being an architect and looking at like a building and a mass and like, what is this overall form like? Um, And I do think that I am heavily inspired by my environment. So I'm kind of curious how my aesthetic is going to change as I, since I just moved back to Philadelphia, like the East coast and the designs here are really different. You know, there's a lot of traditional furniture and not as much contemporary. I mean, there's a little bit, but I do think that my environment here and whoever the clients I take on, they will absolutely have a very different aesthetic. So I still want to maintain kind of like my perspective and my brand and aesthetic choices. Um, however, I do think it might change given just the environment here and the kind of preferences people have.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, I, I love the whole perspective of you know looking at the the you know like a table or whatever piece of furniture you know as an architectural form. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's just a different way of looking at it that I hadn't uh, hadn't seen before.
1: Oh, <laughs> that's all good. I was just gonna say like I think that you can usually tell who used to be an architect and uh, how when they became a furniture maker because it is really similar ways of thinking. Like, I think I was talking to who? Oh, um, I think Bao, Bao, Lai, I think his last name is. Um, so he used to be an architect too. And I think we have really similar aesthetics and styles because we know who the audience we're building for is and who we are trying to market for towards as well. Um, and yeah, he and I have mentioned just like talking in past about how you think about the piece as a whole and, you know, like how do these lines connect with um, the environment around it and it's not just something that is standalone and that's actually why I never photograph on seamlesses, or I try not to because mm-hmm. as nice mm-hmm. as, as it is to see just the piece itself for me it's more important to see it in its context and where it's living so I always try to photograph whatever piece I have in a like wher- wherever it's going to be or I will actually even like rent a studio or not a studio like a like a specific space or find a place in my mm-hmm. house like that I think is more appropriate. And that also helps with marketing too, because I'm trying to almost advertise and market myself as someone who is very cognizant of this kind of architecture and this kind of interior design and style. So that's who my clients should be. And if they see these pictures, then they'll be more compelled to kind of reach out to me and ask for commissions.
0: Absolutely. Do you do any pieces just um, I guess as on spec, do you just come up with a design and try to sell it afterwards or?
1: Uh, yeah, sometimes I, <laughs> I don't like to replicate pieces. So I've had people ask me for like previous designs and I'll say, well, I don't want to repeat it completely, but I'll use that as an inspiration and a jumping off point, And then I'll, uh, try to design something and then show it to them. Um, I, yeah, but in the past I have actually just been like, I have to make this sort of thing or I have to make this piece Mm -hmm. that's in my mind and then I have sold it, which is really nice. And it's, (laughs) I'm lucky it's not my full-time job because I I don't know if that'd be a great way to sustain a living. Um, But I am in a fortunate position where I can just create something and then usually someone will want to buy it or I just keep it in my house. I have too much
0: furniture Right. Yeah. And I was going to say like how much of your stuff in your house uh, have you (laughs) made?
1: Far too much. But I did sell a lot of it in my move um, from California to Pennsylvania. So it was a good way to kind of like restart. I just, I just joined a shop because I was like, Oh, God, I really need nightstands. Like I, I got rid of my old ones and lost up in this house I need to build.
0: Okay. Yeah. Do you have, not have a workshop uh, in your residence or?
1: No, I, uh, so I live in Philly and I just joined a, like, I don't know if they'd call it a maker space. Maybe it is. I guess so. It's like a wood shop, metal shop, you know, 3D printing, jewelry, et cetera. Um, okay. so I just joined actually this past week and trying to get set up. I, yeah, my moving, my moving experience was a little chaotic because they lost some of my stuff and then they like brought someone else's stuff and then none of my tools oh my showed up. So I was freaking out because I was like, there is so much like, I think my most valuable expensive things are all my tools. So I was like, where, right. where is this? Did they get stolen? But they got, they finally showed up and, um, yeah, I'm really ready to get back in the shop because it's been like two months where I haven't been woodworking at all. And I'm very mm-hmm. antsy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's uh yeah, I'm glad that you're, I mean, that's, a. I guess the big city is kind of the place where you can find a shared shop like that, um, right. more yeah. easily and probably harder to find, a. Uh, you know, a place to live that has a workshop <laughs> attached to it.
1: Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, that would be the dream to have like a house with a space for a shop, but I I don't know. I'm okay with this. I'm actually looking forward to it because this place in particular is really, they have a great community of artists. It's not just mm-hmm. woodworkers. There's like artists who do, um, you know, painting and sculpture and woodworking and um, lots of different kinds of things. And we, we all work in the same area. So each artist rents like their own private, little studio space within it and mm-hmm. they're almost like cubicles kind of so you can right. just like walk through and get inspired by the work that other people are doing like there's this guy set up who's doing like wooden drums and like snare drums and they're beautiful and yeah so i'm i'm pretty excited and hoping to get to know the community
0: yeah it will definitely be interesting to see you know if uh you know if you get any new inspiration you know for your designs from you know being in that community. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure. Sure. And did you, were you in the same kind of shop um, when you were in San Francisco?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was also in a makerspace, space, slimmer thing with like wood shop, metal shop. Um, However, I will (laughs) love the space. However, the community aspect was not as strong there. Like I can already tell here that people are a lot more tight, um, tight knit. And back in San Francisco, there wasn't much. I, there were a few people, but there were very few actual like furniture makers. I think it was a lot of like, there's a startup who worked there, but there were a lot more like tech focused people. Um, (laughs) There were a lot of burners. I guess people would go to Burning Man and like to build the structures there. Um, That makes sense. But not too many actual furniture makers, which I kind of missed.
0: Okay. Yeah. And so it sounds like, you know, you definitely have basically been exploring a lot of different ways (laughs) Um, to be creative throughout the, you know, so far. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, you don't seem to have any, you know, fear of like learning new things or, you know, experimenting and jumping in.
1: No, definitely not. I, it might be a problem at this point in which I have too many interests (laughs) because I need to, I I don't have enough time in the world, but uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that in general, I like to explore lots of different, mediums. And I get a lot of my inspiration outside of woodworking, to be honest. So whether it's architecture or sculpture, different kinds of art or music, et cetera, like I think that really is where I enjoy like finding those connections and how I can bring it back to woodworking.
0: Sure. And like when you travel these different cities, are you getting a lot of inspiration right from the architecture that's all around you?
1: hmm Yeah, definitely. I really like to take photos of buildings. My phone is <laughs> looks kind of boring because it's these like very weird little details of like, why did you take a picture of these bricks and the brick pattern? But I don't know. Yeah. There's something that I really like and I um I like to try to find inspiration from it. Actually, one of my uh New Year's resolutions is that I want to do a line of furniture based off of my favorite Philadelphia buildings because I know the city extremely well and I have some specific favorite architects and their buildings and some details that I really enjoy. Um, so that's kind of like one of my goals for this year or maybe the next few years. Cause that it could take a while, but
0: yeah. Right. Is there any, a specific building that you can think of, you know, that you would like to start with or.
1: Yes, there's one uh, at my, where I went to college, um, on at the university of Pennsylvania. So they're, Fine Arts Building was this uh, library by Frank Furness. It's called the Fisher Fine Arts Building. And it is just the most beautiful, like intricate detail work that I have ever seen. And everything this architect did was just so beautiful. Like considered everything It's down to like the railing to the, like the stained glass to the, like the actual facade. And I'm not trying to build a piece of furniture that looks like a building. Like I don't want that inspiration to be so direct. It's like, Oh, (laughs) it's just like a small building. Like I want to look at the small details and get inspiration from those. So I'm, my goal is to go take a lot of photos and I'm going to do a lot of sketching. I sketch a ton in general, my notebooks. And well, currently I guess my iPad is just like filled with pages of scribbles and things like that. But, um, yeah, that's going to be my first one. I would highly recommend anyone who listens look up Fisher Fine Arts Library because it is a beautiful building.
0: Oh my! Yeah, I'm looking it up. It's pretty incredible. It's um, yeah, so it's like the castle, but it also yeah. has like <laughs> uh, um round part of the library building that's just mm-hmm. I don't know. It's hard to describe. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah, it's where I spent it, all of my undergrad yeah. actually. Um, wow that's where I went for that's where all like the fine arts and the design students would go and you could go there and study and just like the whole atmosphere and environment is, yeah, it, it's incredible.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's, that's uh, interesting. I'm curious, um, what different architecture schools look like and how that affects people. <laughs> um, yeah. I wonder if anyone's written a paper on that. Um, like how, how the, uh, <laughs> the, the design of your architecture school building affects your, uh, how you look at architecture and, you know, where you go. Yeah.
1: With,
0: uh, yeah fun cause... story,
1: a lot of architecture schools, including the one at Penn, the architecture building is almost always the worst looking building. Like the actual one where the <laughs> students have their studios. Like this is a library, right. so it has all the books, right. but the actual yeah. studio mm-hmm. is just so hideous and it's right next to it. And I feel like I've encountered many similar buildings <laughs> on different college campuses. where like, oh yeah, that's where the architects are architecture students are i was like are you kidding me this looks like a terrible like slab of concrete it it just it's so ugly (laughs) but yeah it is what it is it's
0: (laughs) aversion therapy they're like don't i've never (laughs) never designed a building like this right exactly (laughs) that must be the the opposite effect there (laughs) yeah yes now i want to go to this college um (laughs) that's one thing that i've always um and I've been on a bunch of, you know, just different college campuses, um, mm-hmm. for, you know, MIT, Harvard, a bunch of ones that I've got to walk around. I didn't go to college in any of these places. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but just, they're just, you know, just the whole atmosphere of those type of college campuses that have the old buildings is really interesting to see.
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. certainly,
0: uh, certainly inspiring, I can imagine. Yeah.
1: It feels very um, Northeast, kind of. It's a very, very specific time period and
0: style of building right yeah that's definitely that makes sense because that's you know i grew up here and pretty much stuck around the northeast for mm-hmm. most of the time so i haven't seen enough uh, you know that much variety right yeah um, yet um that's cool is there any other cities that particularly um you know you really love to visit or look at the buildings
1: hmm yes um well, I mean, yeah, a lot of cities, but another one that really stuck with me was Istanbul, Turkey. So I lived there uh, after college. This is a very random kind of path in life. Another fun fact is, yeah, so I lived in Turkey uh, t- on an archaeological dig <laughs> uh, on an ancient Greek city and basically was helping the archaeologists and the um, it was Oxford professors they were just doing some like digging up an ancient city basically. And they needed architects to help come draft and survey. So I was doing a lot of like hand drawing of these ruins and then putting that into CAD and just um, helping them with their research papers. So I was in Turkey for a while. Istanbul was beautiful. Just like the most incredible architecture. And it's not like anything here, obviously. So it's just Mm -hmm. kind of mind blowing for someone who had not been Out of the U.S. too much until until then. Like when I when I went to Turkey, I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is incredible!" It just the the environment there, and then you know, there's the the Hagia Sophia, like the mosques, and just yeah, that's it. That city in particular was really amazing, and I do I really want to go back and hopefully do some furniture inspired
0: there too. That sounds that sounds great. How did you end up with that opportunity? Did (laughs) was they were looking for architecture students on your campus and
1: yes yeah they looked, yeah that was just like a listing i forget how even how i came across it. i think it may have been like a flyer on one of those like flyer boards with a million staples and i saw it and was like huh, oh, that could be cool i mean i don't have a job lined up it was 2013 which was not a great year for architects um architecture firms they weren't hiring so i was like okay i'll go do this like they're gonna pay me a little they supply housing and i'm in the middle of nowhere it's like 4 hours from any major city so it could be fun and it it was incredible like one of the best experiences of my life getting to just work with um the local villagers who were the people who did all the digging um they invited us to like their wedding which was which ended up wow. being the entire village fun <laughs> <laughs> like fun story they like made <laughs> They made the Americans dance to like Gangnam style, I guess, which we we're all just very confused. Like, we uh, right. <laughs> don't really know this, but okay. And yeah, but they were really nice and friendly. And just that whole experience was pretty insane. Like getting to climb up on these ancient structures that are like 30, 40 feet up in the air and there's nothing holding me in. They're like, okay, now go up, climb up this thing. It might be precarious, but also carry like a surveyor equipment that's like tens of thousands of dollars don't drop it and I have a really bad fear of heights so I had to get over that extremely quickly and (laughs) it was uh pretty crazy but just like climbing up on these ruins was so much fun
0: amazing yeah that's just sounds like an incredible experience I've never (laughs) (laughs) been able to do anything like that um but yeah yeah
1: I was very lucky and uh it was also a period where i didn't have like wi-fi reception so that was just like I, like and like back then it wasn't as like i don't know i don't think i was on social media that much it was in 2013 right. so a while ago but like not having access to wi-fi or reception was just very um uh enriching i guess and it was like a good reset and at night, I wouldn't spend time on my computer or my phone. Like, we would go out, me and the other archaeologists and architects, we'd go out into the ruins and, like, have a party or, like, sleep under the stars. And it was just, that's just what you did.
0: <laughs> right. So, one of the aspects I think of most creative people is that they pay attention to more things around them. Yes. You know what I mean? It's obviously, um, <laughs> like, in architecture, being in cities, you're You know, we already talked about that. You take a lot of pictures of all the small details um, Mm -hmm. on your phone. So definitely sounds like you've been doing that. Do you, um, have you always been doing that? Were you doing that before you went to architecture school? Just when you're being around, did you notice like details, small things, or do you think you develop that through your education and just creative practices?
1: What's that question? I, hmm. As much as I wish I could say that I did <laughs> uh, when I was younger, I don't think I did. I think that was something that I really had to develop an eye for and school really helped define that, but also my interests and passions and hobbies helped as well. So even if I'm looking at like a piece of architectures for like an arch, for example, like that. Is not something that I would have cared about as a kid, but now mm-hmm. I see it as like a potential curve for a chair, like a table or a piece of furniture. So having my like hobbies and interests and being able to draw those connections across um, areas of interests like that is probably more relevant now. And I'm sure social media helps too because I I see these you know images and videos of places of inspiration or something that I haven't visited yet and um, that probably plays more of a role now and it wasn't as much when I was younger. So probably the latter, I would say just it, my eye had to be developed and it's something that I try to pass on to a lot of people,
0: but I'm sure I just
1: come off as that annoying girl who's like, look at these bricks. Aren't they right. amazing?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's this um, a meme that I've seen a couple times and it's like um, when you're an adult, no one wants to show you their like the, cool rock that they found
1: right (laughs) exactly
0: (laughs) so yeah so so i i posted something along the lines of yeah find the people who you know want to show you the cool rock you know those are the people our friends that we're making on instagram and social media like people who keep doing that you know
1: (laughs) yeah exactly so i hope i uh i hope i'm that person but i assume i'm also just kind of a weird annoying girl who's like oh my god these are so cool (laughs)
0: Yep. Well, that's why I'm, you know, again, it's like, that's why, you know, a lot of people that I end up talking to, you know, discover, you know, if they don't, if you don't go to art school, you don't necessarily find that circle of people who also are interested mm-hmm. in just every crazy detail. So, yeah, you know, it's definitely. Good to be able to find those people online. And uh, a lot of people that I end up talking to, you know, I've found people who are close by to me that I wouldn't have found without going on to, you know, Instagram or Facebook. So. Yes. It's interesting. Yeah, me
1: too. Definitely. <laughs>
0: okay, <so. laughs> mm-hmm. Cool. And do you see any, you know, parallels in architecture and your furniture design in what you do for your day job?
1: Hmm. Uh, good question. Yes. In terms of the design process, not so much in form, obviously. Um, Cause I work <laughs> in like ancient UIs for Premiere Pro and After Effects. But in terms of the design process, 100%. Like, uh, Actually, it was a really common career switch from for architects to go into UX design because the thought process is the same and definitely the same for furniture too. So you have an idea, you do some sketches, you think about the actual experience. Um, architecture is a little bit more relevant because you think of like what is the experience the person uh, goes through as they walk through a building? How do you um, define the form so that it is not a frustrating or unintuitive experience. And that is my case too, as a UX designer. So, um, the best UX designer actually, or the best UX design is always invisible Mm -hmm. because you never want someone to be frustrated by like an app or like, how do I do this? Like, why is this here? Why is like, uh, it's a lot of, um, actually me catering to my dad or my parents who are old and don't. Quite understand technology, and if they can understand something, then I know it's like truly good UX. Because, uh, it, yeah, it's just intuitive, it makes sense, things like that. So there's a lot of parallels for the design thought process um that I, yeah, that I draw from, and that's why I say I'm like at heart, I'm truly a designer because it is what I think about twenty four seven, and it's mm-hmm. my job, it's my hobby, it's just everything.
0: Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Back when I got started in like web development stuff, back before there was user experience, but that was a thing. Um, it was there, but they didn't call it that. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of uh, people were talking about um, a pattern language, the the Christopher Alexander architecture. Yeah. Book, um, <laughs> a million years ago, um, yeah. and just the parallels between that and you know thinking about yeah again how people are going to move through the experience of you know working with your software.
1: Yes, exactly. So that's, I mean they that's call it interesting parallel. Yeah, they call it information architecture. And uh, yep. a lot of the actual terminologies are really similar and
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, there's a lot of crossover.
0: Yes, and there's and that reminds me, there's a book back, I don't know, from probably early two thousands called Don't Make Me Think, which is yes. yeah, um, <laughs> that was for web design. Basically, yeah, designing you know, web applications that again, the the most the most obvious thing is the correct way to use the software so you don't have to uh, and uh i constantly complain about that today I'm working <laughs> with uh some quickbooks software and uh oh it's just, yeah <laughs>
1: it's
0: like why are there three extra steps to this you should just be able to you know immediately you know search for what you want but you have to click this thing and then it pops open this other box and then you have to, you know and it's just non-intuitive and you know clunky and just not straightforward so but I don't oh, yeah. work there. It's hard to, you know, <laughs> I'm not necessarily criticizing the people who had to uh, deliver that software on the deadline, but it's, uh, right. you yeah, know, I can see, <laughs> you know, where, you know, it could be, you know, harder for, you know, a regular person who isn't, you know, doesn't understand how software <laughs> design works. Oh, yeah.
1: Yes. That is my, the majority of my job, I would say, is that uh, working with legacy code so i work on the video and audio um software for so premiere pro after effects audition any of those Mm -hmm. things and like some people like i I understand it's not a good some there are some designs that are not good experiences and as much as i wish i could fix it it's just such an undertaking to change like the smallest thing like color of something or like move a button over it's like oh no that's gonna take like another like four sprints like are you kidding me like you can't just move it over as a designer i am like that's insane but also as someone who understands who like knows a bit of code like i I get it it's legacy code and it's going to just cause a chain reaction of errors and things like Mm -hmm. that but (laughs) yeah it's a lot of uh that's that's the majority of my job is juggling kind of like okay what what can we do that is an improvement to the existing experience, but also not break everything.
0: Right. Yeah. If you think about the software that's been around for that long, it didn't, it wasn't, you know, I always said it wasn't designed, you know, to be that exact thing. It grew organically, you know, each part of it was designed along the way, but you know, if you tried to look at all the whole history of how it got there, there's mm-hmm, an explanation exactly. for why that button is like that or you know, why that thing is in that place.
1: Yes, you know, exactly.
0: Yeah, it's not it's not always easy to fix.
1: Yeah. So that's uh that can be a little frustrating, but um I it, yeah, I signed up for it. I knew what I was getting myself into. I there's newer softwares and applications that don't have to deal with that because they are fairly new like code bases and uh one day I might work on that. We'll see. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah just yeah definitely have d- different opportunities within uh within the company yeah right yeah, yeah they definitely make a little bit of everything mm-hmm. yes nice I was gonna say something else. oh um yeah that's the other thing I was gonna ask you is about uh, teaching how did you get started teaching
1: yeah I did a little bit of teaching um mostly' just like a wood shop reached out to me um they were actually a clay or like a ceramic studio first and then they built a wood shop because they wanted. Uh, more people to get interested in it, but they reached out to me and I taught like six week classes. So six days, um, over six weeks, uh, like how to teach or how to build a, for example, like a bench from scratch. I think my most popular mm-hmm. class was like a bench with uh, woven leather straps in it with like brass rivets. So I did a bit of leather working, not much, but enough to, you know, hobble something together of, how to weave and how to finish the leather and um, just the combination of the different materials people are really drawn to. So um, yeah. And then like some students learned how to dye the leather and there were some very interesting looking benches. Um, Yeah. It was just a, it was a good time, but it was very rewarding. I had not taught before and Mm -hmm. it made me realize how much I liked it and how exhausting teaching is. So it was one day. I cannot imagine like, the full-time job of teaching, like, oh my goodness, that is, uh, like, tons of respect for teachers, because one day, it just, I felt like I ran a marathon each time.
0: Wow, that's just a really interesting coincidence. So, you do you know, like, how they found you, or reached out, and thought that you would be uh, a good teacher?
1: <laughs> just through social media, I think they reached out, and um, they liked the style of furniture that I did, and um, I... Yeah, I hadn't taught before, so I was really scared and I massively overprepared. Like I think I, I printed out like booklets for these for these students who I'm a hundred percent sure did not read them, but it was like all of the safety tips because I'm really paranoid about people getting hurt and mm-hmm. um like every single tool. I just listed out every safety thing that I knew and how to do and like illustrations. And <laughs> I think I, I went overboard, but um I was just so scared of anybody hurting themselves. So yeah. <laughs> it was yeah, good. hurting no themselves.
0: <laughs> Especially if it's like a new shop, you know. So maybe those, yes. you know, it's you know, they don't have that culture rule set up. Do you know like yeah. what kind of experience people had when they came in the class? Like were um, all Usually members, no novices? experience.
1: Um, wow. yeah, which was also another challenge itself, but I enjoyed it. And I know actually one thing I noticed was, um, and I was told this was that I had a lot of women in my classes, which mm-hmm. uh I learned was mostly because they were they were very comfortable with a woman teacher too, which right. I really enjoyed um because I had not had that before. Um, but I am just really happy that I could make people feel comfortable and they were able to ask questions and um also like design things in the style. And some of them still reach out to me today, asking, like, oh, how would you do this or things like that. So I that that's another aspect I really enjoyed, just getting more women interested in the trade.
0: That's great. And was there a, like design aspect of to the class? Did everybody did people customize their work, or did everybody build the same venture?
1: They could. I mean, there wasn't much customization available because we were restricted to like a certain six week time period. However, mm-hmm. there were small things like you could add like a little um, like rail for a foot here, or um, you can dye the leather strips different colors. Uh, you can keep it natural. You can do different kinds of rivets or. Um, you can change the dimensions too. So small things like that, um, they could customize it for whoever they wanted in their house. And yeah, and then it just kind of gets them thinking of like, oh, what else could I do then?
0: Yeah, sure. And do you know how many people or do you have an idea of folks who who did they keep going and, you know, get into actually making their own furniture?
1: Yeah, some of them did. Um, Some of them, well, I don't know. I didn't keep tabs on everyone, but there were definitely some students who continued on with their woodworking. I know one of them, um, went really deep into it and then learned how to do like a lot of hand tools and um, making her own furniture. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad to say that I, I, I hope the class inspired some people.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. And are you, do you have any plans to do more teaching in the future?
1: It would be nice. Uh, it is <laughs> very, time consuming because I work a full time job. So you right. do a
0: full time job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so like back then I was doing the full time job plus like Saturdays was the class and then Sundays was me working on commission stuff. So right. I got very
0: That's tired.
1: <laughs> it's like I might need like one day to take off, but um I think eventually it would be really nice to get back into it.
0: All right. Um that was a lot of fun. I do <laughs> Want to thank you for hanging out with me today. Where can people uh, see your furniture and what you're working on?
1: Yeah, sure. My uh, Instagram is Kodamari Design, K O D A M A R I Design. Um, and the website is kodamaridesign.com. But uh, yeah, if you're interested or you feel passionate about small details and bricks or arches, please let me know because I always want to connect with people who are into that.
0: Absolutely. Um, sure. And I want to take a second to thank the people over at Patreon who helped make the show happen uh, especially my top patrons ed johns sean beckner and brian callahan if you want to support the show and get access to the after show where we get a little bit more of conversation with our guests you can go to patreon.com slash making problems to solve you can also follow the show on instagram at making problems to solve and you can follow me on instagram at dave bauer art Uh, thanks a lot for talking to me today
1: Thank you.